So Money episode 937, Diane Harris, award-winning financial journalist and editor-at-large at Newsweek. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Money was always tight. There was a lot of anxiety around it. I I didn't feel deprived, but I was always aware of the stress. And I was always aware of the dependence on my father, who didn't give us a lot of money. Empathy, experience, and expertise. Just a few of the reasons why our guest today is one of the leading personal finance authorities. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Diane Harris was the first woman ever to be appointed editor-in-chief of Money Magazine. There, she helped the brand transition to the digital world with Money.com and brought important and sometimes taboo issues related to women and money to the forefront. After 22 years at Money, she is now one of the top editors at Newsweek. And as we just heard her share, her childhood made a significant impact on her desire to help others with their finances. We begin our conversation talking about a recent cover story for Newsweek that Diane wrote. The topic, the biggest myths about student loans. I was shocked. So much to discuss. Here we go. Here's Diane Harris. Diane Harris, welcome to So Money, my friend. Farnoosh, I am so happy to be doing this with you. I'm a fan. You're, we're in mutual fanhood society here. I was so grateful to be connected to you way back when, when I was coming out with When She Makes More, the book, <laughs> and you were one of the biggest advocates for this message that I was trying to put out in the world as someone who was living it and as someone who at the time was you know, a leader at Money Magazine. You put an excerpt in the issue that month when the book came out. It was just so um, synergistic and serendipitous to it. The same time. And then, of course, we became friends quickly after. And since Money, you've gone on to Next Avenue, which is a PBS website. You had a column there and then Considerable. You were running that. And now at Newsweek, which you just inked the cover story about student loans. I did. It was great. I know there's so much Not to talk about. Not a great story. I mean, there's such a great story. And of course, your passion in personal finance spans, you know, women and money, all the things that I want to talk about in women and money in a minute. But this cover story for Newsweek is so timely. I just have to ask you about, first of all, what's, what interested you in it? Because I mean, there's been so much written about student loans. Your angle was here are the things that we misunderstand about student loans. And I think I walked away feeling actually a little more optimistic in some ways about the state of student loans, but in some ways also a lot more concerned. But, but you know, what was the impetus for this? Why did you want to write this? Well, first of all, I'm so um, I'm intrigued that you walked away more optimistic. And I think that that's the right takeaway. I think that um, we are used to hearing about student loans talked about only as a crisis. And while there are parts of student borrowing that are, in fact, 
in crisis, it's not the whole of it. I mean, there are a lot of people who are borrowing, who are borrowing in amounts that are manageable, and those loans enable them to get a college education or a graduate school education that enables them to earn more in the workplace. There's a lot about student loans that are good. The impetus for me writing this story was I had just been um, looking through some stories for Newsweek and came across some data on student debt that surprised me. I was I was hearing things I didn't know, like the fact that student borrowing by undergraduates had actually been dropping for the past several years. I, I had no clue. And you only hear about it growing and growing exponentially. And that people with Six-figure loans were really rare. Like one of my sources eventually described it as unicorns in borrowing land. And it just felt like there were all these misconceptions. And how can we solve this? And I'm doing air quotes, so you can't see me, but right. you know, this crisis, <laughs> um, if, if we don't have the right information about what the problems are. So that that's the backstory. Yeah, I really appreciated this piece. And, you know, it reminded me of a research uh, piece that came out of Penn State where I went to school. I was over the summer, I was talking to the dean of the business school, and he told me something really surprising about student loans, which actually was in your article, although I think there's been a number of data points looking at this perspective, which is that, so this is really shocking, people who are defaulting on their loans, okay, a lot of these people, more of these people are those with smaller balances, smaller monthly payments. So those with like $100,000 in student loan debt are about half as likely to default as those with less than $5,000 in student loans, yes. which is shocking. And this is this is this mirrors what I think came out of the Penn State research you hear citing um, the Center for American Progress and the Federal Bank of New York, Federal Reserve Bank of New York. So I, what do you think that says about th these people? Like who, did they have an understanding of why that may be? Yeah. I mean, it is shocking to me that it's, that in general, it's the smallest borrowers who are in the most trouble. And the reason is that the majority of those small borrowers are people who did not go on to finish their college degree. So they borrowed to go to school they weren't able to complete their degree for whatever reason, and so never got the benefit of the salary boost that mm. you get from having right. from having that degree. So they had the expense, but not the payoff. So that's one reason. Another reason is that there are a lot of people who are borrowing in that camp who who go to for-profit universities. And it was a rule change several years ago that enabled people to borrow more who were going to for-profit universities. And again, those rarely pay off in the same kind of salary boost. So you wind up again with the expense, but not the benefit. Well, like I said, a bit of optimism in some ways, but this particular piece was, uh, this particular myth was um, shocking and concerning, but everybody should check out uh, the Newsweek article that you that you wrote and what a way to make a splash is kind of like your first uh, few months at Newsweek and, and writing this really important piece. Um, they must love you. 
Well, thank you. Well, I, I, I think it's, I think we're mutually happy with each other. Mm-hmm. I'm not doing, you know, mostly as an editor, you know, I'm a behind the scenes person. Right. I'm, I'm usually the person who is assigning and discussing stories with writers. But every once in a while, I really, I love to keep my hand in about issues that I'm really passionate about. And it's great that Newsweek is open to me being both writer on occasion, in addition to editing. The article is called The Truth About Student Debt, Seven Facts No One Is Talking About. Check it out. Diane, you were the first and only female to lead Money Magazine. That's so big. You know, my first internship was at Money, so... I um, do know that before, you know, in I was at Money in two separate stints and you were there as an intern in between. So I didn't know you way back when you were a wee thing, but I knew, you, you know, when, when you had come into your own with this, this, you know, really terrific book. And then, you know, you didn't mention not only did we excerpt the book, but you became a columnist for us yes, for, a, yes. for a short period of time. And those those columns were really, really terrific for a new sh- for your audience. You know, and I really share a passion about um, helping women manage their money and come into their own. I mean, women are great at managing money. It's it's sort of just the story is not out there. Yeah. And now you're seeing more people are demanding financial advice, female financial advisors, because the data's out and yep. women advisors, financial advisors tend to outperform for their clients. Um, so we're, we're seeing some of the, the movement progress. And for you, what was some of the, what were some of the personal reasons why you cared so much about, um, putting a spotlight on women and money issues. I mean, obviously you're a woman, but it should, but but we all come to this with our own personal reasons. For me, it was because I felt like a kind of like I had personal struggles with being a breadwinner. I figured I probably wasn't alone. Let's talk about it. And then that opened up a whole window to exploring female financial feminism, as we kind of call it today. But for you, what were some of the the personal reasons behind it? Sure. Well, the biggest factor for me, although, you know, it's funny, I've all these years of, of passionately advocating for and writing about women and money, I never thought about it in this way. When I was growing up, Money was very tight and for me associated with anxiety and dependence. And it had to do with the fact that my parents divorced when I was very young and at a time when divorce wasn't common. And my mom had been a full-time homemaker who was totally dependent on my dad financially. And when they split up, her only income was a very modest amount of alimony and child support, very, very modest. And she supplemented that sometimes by working part-time as a receptionist. Money was always tight. There was a lot of anxiety around it. Um, We didn't I didn't feel deprived, but I was always aware of the stress and I was always aware of the dependence on my father who didn't give us a lot of money. Um, So the big takeaway for me from all of that was do not depend on anyone for money but you, especially when you're a woman. And we see it time and time again. and that lesson has been echoed 
in seeing friends and colleagues and other people of my mother's generation, just time and time again, you can't depend on anyone but you. And for women, that's particularly important. That's so important. So, uh, do you have do you feel like you have any radical views on this that maybe I feel sometimes like we're still living in such a patriarchy that it's it's not cool to just say, you know, all women should work because that's really the only way you're going to preserve your financial identity and your income. Like I have very uh, controversial thoughts around stay-at-home parenting, not because I don't believe in the value of having a parent at home to watch the children and, and care for children, but it's that I worry about the financial solvency of this parent who isn't bringing in any income and... I don't know how you feel about that, but what would you say? Do you feel like sometimes you're going against the grain and some of these views that may seem otherwise really logical? I don't know that I feel that I'm going against the grain, but I feel like I do feel that in some regards, we're still in a throwback society when it comes to women and money. And, and I want to, put a giant caveat on that. We've come, you know, a huge way. I think that, um, and, and women are really great at money when we step up to the plate, just like you said about female financial advisors, the same is true of women managing their own money. When we, when we step up and we do it, we're really great at it. And there's a lot of research that shows we tend to get better results because for a variety of reasons, mostly because we, we are not hooked on the action. We just, you know, we buy and we hold and we're prudent and we're patient. And um, there are a lot of factors that go into it that we're very good at it. But too often we still delegate. And that seems like a throwback. And I think we delegate for a couple of different reasons. Um, Again, gross generalization. But one is that, um, you know, we've been still raised in this patriarchal way about money to think that men are somehow not just not just better at it, but that it is somehow not feminine to be really good with money. Sally Krawcheck, the mm-hmm. uh, CEO and founder of, of Elvest, re- recently wrote an op-ed for us. And she was talking about that, that there's still this mindset around women and money that it doesn't seem like a feminine or an attractive quality. I- I've actually not experienced that in my own life. I think men find it... Um, I think it's sexy. I think it's sexy for a woman to be strong Absolutely. And, 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 you know, really great with money. And that's kind of the reaction that I've gotten. That's if I had to say one thing, there's something not controversial, but out there like, hey, hey, ladies and mm-hmm. men, mm-hmm. it is sexy to be good with managing your money. So that's one thing. But the bigger thing I really think is that these days when so many of us are in the workforce, the vast majority of us are, you know, our to-do lists are just so long. We have so much to do. We are taking on so much between our our families and our jobs and giving it our all. If there's one thing we can take off of our to-do list and give it to the man in our life, sometimes we do that. It just feels easier, but we can't. We can't. And of course, there's benefits to 
having the quote unquote CFO in the family, I think that naturally the person who's more excited about it, more capable to do whatever it is in the house, whether that's, you know, um, managing the childcare, managing the finances, however, you can't check out, right? That's the problem. Is no, you have this can't check out. Head in the sand sometimes approach to, um, to relinquishing our really our our rights because we sometimes I mean, it happens women just don't even know like my mother I'll I'll use her as an example yeah. she must love me by now but you know and I don't think it's just generational I think that there are still women today in like that are coming up into marriages now that don't know how much their husbands make don't know where to pay the mortgage don't know really what's going on in the tax return they're just co-signing it and that mm-hmm. is a huge 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 risk huge risk uh, putting your head in the sand. It's it's one thing to kind of like, you know, say this is maybe your domain because you um, are quote unquote more interested in it, but you got to show the interest by at least having those monthly meetings and knowing where things are kept. And, and so if, if yeah. for no other reason, if, if your partner is not able to do what he's been doing or she's been doing that you can then pick up the work easily, seamlessly. You know, that's the, that's the reason that we, that is most commonly given. And of course that's, you know, a thousand percent true. That's right. Because stuff happens and it happens routinely Mm -hmm. and you can't foresee it. So you have to know where everything is and how it works and how to manage the money. You don't want to have to step up when you're in a crisis because it's an emotional situation. You're in a crisis. But I would say equally important or maybe even more important is that, is that, we think men are just sorry guys, really sorry. I'm I'm I don't mean to do this blanket generalization, but maybe I do. Um, you know, men are not nearly as good at managing money and investing as we think they are. And they're certainly not as good as they think they are. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of research that shows that women are really, really good at it. And of course, there are lots of men who are too. I'm not trying to say that that they're bad at it, but but they're not as good as we think they are. And so if you really care about managing your money wisely, and of course, we all do, then you have to step up to the plate. You have to be part of the team. You don't have to take the lead, but you do have to be aware and have those conversations. I know you talk about, because lots and lots of people do, the money date. I actually hate the money date. I hate that whole concept. <laughs> but, but I think a date That's totally fine. I'm sorry. I mean, talk about controversial. Everybody, everybody believes in the money date. I think a date should be a date. But I do think that you have to be, and that doesn't involve like talking about how you're diversifying your no no no. Days. Um, Maybe but, diversify the wine offerings. The wine. There you go. The A wine that's coming to your table. Heart. Yeah. Um, that's that's exactly right. But you do have to be talking about it. You you really do, and I prefer whenever possible to have it be organic. Like my husband and I really do talk about things together and we do it as things come up and we do it routinely and, um, and it's, and it just has a rhythm that works for us. I guess everybody has to find whatever works for them. The point is you have to talk about it. 
Right. And maybe if to get you started, because it is such a taboo topic and emotional to have a an appointment, so to speak, every so often so that it is done. And then ideally the goal, the North Star is that it just becomes this organic thing that you don't feel hesitant to talk about money ever. Yes. I, I tend to bring it up around 11 p.m. before we're about to turn off the lights. Like, should we move? <laughs> I'm thinking about refinancing the mortgage. Oh, my gosh. My husband. And then... And then, then he takes <laughs> melatonin so he can tune it out. Oh my gosh. So here's a question for as a as a respected journalist in personal finance. I was just having coffee with another friend yesterday who's also a financial journalist and we were thinking about impact. What is the impact that our community has really been making over the last say 20 years, 30 years since maybe the 80s? Um, we've come a long way, as you said. We've made a lot of strides in helping people and moving the dial, but still, the you know, the jury's out. And if you look at some of the data out there regarding you know the inability for people to say come up with an emergency of 400 bucks, mm-hmm. um, their lack of inability to retire, inability to pay down their loans, um, et cetera, et cetera. And you got to wonder, are we really helping people? I think we are. I think we are. Mm-hmm. But if you kind of look, if you want to look at policy and where that sits versus where the personal finance advice community sits there, I feel like there's an opportunity for all us like to work together and we're not. And I'm just curious about what maybe your colleagues within your inner circle have been talking about recently, because I feel like there's a bit of a a campaign and to to question the work of personal finance experts and personal finance journalists, uh, because we kind of have arrived at a place where there's still a lot of work to be done and wondering mm-hmm. if we're really moving the needle. So just curious to get your thoughts on that. Well, I'm, I'm fascinated by that. I'm not sure that, that I have heard the same sort of feedback, but, but it does resonate with me because I, I think one of the challenges for personal finance journalists and for financial advisors, I mean, sort of the whole financial advice community, journalists included, is that we have focused very much on on showing people or teaching people or talking to people about the right things to do with our money. And the truth is that most people know the right things to do with their money, in broad strokes anyway. Most people know that you ought to save for emergencies. Most people know they ought to sock away money for retirement and other long-term goals. Most people know they shouldn't be running up credit cards. Most people know they shouldn't be impulse spending. The hard part is not knowing the right thing to do or even how to do it. It's getting yourself to do it. Right. It's it's behavioral finance that really has to be all this research from behavioral economists that look at why we do what we do with our money and how to change that. That's really where uh, increasingly in my own work, I've been shifting the focus to that, to marry what we know we need to do with how to get ourselves to do it. Because, for example, one of the most powerful forces in our lives, not just when it comes to our money, but but in general, and when it comes to our money, is inertia. 
Yeah. <laughs> like inertia is a really powerful force. We tend to take the path of least resistance. We tend to do the thing that's that's easiest, even when it's not in our best interests, even when we know it's not in our best interests. And so one of the things you want to do as a personal finance journalist or an advisor is make it easy for people to do the right thing with their money. Um, make it harder to do the stuff that undermines your goal. So it's to incorporate those those principles. Why don't we do? You can tell people until they're blue in the face that they should retire. They should save for retirement before they save for college, because. Your kid can take out a loan, they can go to a cheaper college, they can do all sorts of things. But most people want to do stuff for their kids. Right. And you're, you know, you're not paying attention to the emotional truth that's going to drive them. So my call to my colleagues and to myself is to sort of pay as much attention to why people do the things they do with their money and how you can motivate them or make it easy for them to do those things. Don't just teach them facts. Right, right. Because like you said, you can Google the facts. It's yeah. our power is in the ability to distill everything and make it easy and show examples. I think people are also really moved when they see how others have done the, the hard work and maybe it wasn't that hard and they they look just like me and they sound just like me. And so I should be able to do it too. I, I think I, I completely agree with what you're saying. And, you know, you've been covering personal finance, um, your entire like professional career. I wonder, um, I have friends who've dropped out after 10 years because they're like, I've said everything I've wanted to say. <laughs> yeah. This has not exhausted you. What keeps you going? Oh, what a great question, Farnoosh. I do really love you. Um, so what keeps me going is that there is always some fresh or new angle that I'm learning. And, you know, behavioral finance is, is, is one great example. I mean, I've been covering personal finance for such a big part of my career, but have just had the aha moment that it's really all about trying to change our behavior and not just to teach facts. So for me, there's always been a new, uh, a new community to address, a new, a new angle, a new bunch of research. Um, and for me, I guess the biggest thing that keeps it fresh is that, um, you know, when I when I first started covering personal finance, like a lot of personal finance journalists, I fell into it. It's not that it was my calling. It's not what I set out to do. It's it's where the jobs were, and I kind of fell into it. And it took me many years of doing it to realize that you know I was going to be a, a, a doing things that that helped with social justice and you know like social issues. And it took me a long time, several years, to realize that that's what I was doing with personal finance, that personal finance isn't about helping people make more money. It's about giving them choice and opportunity in their lives because everything we want to do with our lives, whether it's, you know, uh, send our kids to college or renovate the kitchen or start our own business or whatever it is, has a price tag. And so it's really just about giving yourself choices in life 
to do the things you want to do. And there's always a new a new way to look at that. And that's kind of what keeps me going. It's so true. And and just to be selfish about it, for me, it's been so rewarding to learn as I write and as I explore and I teach others. And I always say to my audience, we're all experts, you know, we're of varying degrees. Because if you've lived, if you're living life and you're spending your money and you're saving your money and you're doing all the things with your money, guess what? You're carrying with you so much experience that is of such great value to the other people in your life that you want to share it with because we learn best from others that we trust and admire. So let's share. I think that's such a great um, asset that we all have. And, and again, a reminder that you're not arriving at this money thing kind of some people would say I'm not good at it or it's not my thing. But like if you're if you're making income and you're doing stuff with that money, you're learning stuff. And that is that is valuable. Um, Those are all valuable takeaways for everybody else to learn from. You're absolutely right. You have all the tools and it's not about having a lot of money because there's been a lot of research that shows that the the qualities most associated with financial health are planning and thinking ahead and they're not correlated with how much money people make. They're correlated with those kinds of good habits. And we those are the kinds of things if you have a career, if you have a family, you're doing all the time. You just need to apply it to your finances. And the other thing to keep in, in mind for people when they say, you know, I'm not good about it, good at it, it's not in my wheelhouse, is, is that the basics are simple. You know, it's heresy maybe for someone who's made her entire living from giving advice, but the basics really are pretty easy. And, and if you want to do more, or if you want to be more sophisticated about it, you can. But the basics are something everyone can do. And it's really about, about putting some more planning and forethought into it, to being mindful. And we can all do that. We can all do that. You had this award-winning series on um, things like the high cost of mental health treatment. These are all situations that you were very personally tied to, caring for yes. aging parents, Caring for a loved one with dementia, the high cost of saying goodbye. I've done a bunch of interviews on this topic because I don't think we can talk about this enough. Especially when you look at millennials, there, I think I read like two thirds of millennials are taking care of an aging parent or Mm -hmm. an aging relative. So this hits all individuals at all stages. Um, Mm -hmm. What do you think people are not prepared for? What is the most important thing you want to tell people about the aging process and the affordability of that? And also the emotional, you know, undertones. Yeah, I think that so all so much of my work, like all the rest of us have been fueled by things that have happened in my own life. And I, you know, was a caregiver for my for my mom for many, many years, I was a financial caregiver first, and then, you know, a physical caregiver as well. Um, All of those stories that you mentioned came from personal experiences in my life. And I think the emotional and physical drain as you're caring for somebody who is older um, is probably even tougher than the financial ramifications. And so actually, if I, if I have to say just one thing, it is to remember to take care of yourself, um, that, that there are, there are opportunities for respite care where you can take a break. 
Um, you have to be okay about asking for help. It is um, because you're not only not good for your aging loved one, but not not to yourself as well if you don't ask for help and get the help that you need. It's, it's very, very difficult. And it's also really incumbent on employers to help to, to, to work with somebody, you know, ask for flexibility in your schedule, you know, look for ways to make the process easier for you and look for places within your community that can help. There's a lot of services that go unused that, that, that are helpful, whether it's adult daycare or transportation services or meals. Um, and you just want to take advantage of all the help that's available to you because it's a lot. Yeah. What is something that you are personally connected to right now that you want to write about? Is there, or, you know, you're an editor at Newsweek, but if you had the opportunity to write about something right now, what would it be that you really want to give a voice to? So uh, I would like to talk about the opportunity gap for women, not just the pay gap. We talk a lot about the pay gap. Um, but when we control for a lot of different factors, it turns out that if you're really talking about equal pay for exactly equal work, we're not so far apart. Payscale has done a lot of really great research on this. But where there's a huge discrepancy, huge, is in opportunity. And, um, you know, we're still not getting promoted at at the same rates. We're still not represented in the top areas where we can earn the big bucks or the bigger bucks, at least. It's a particularly big issue for women of color, um, where the gap is even larger. So I'd like, along with all the all, all our conversations about pay equality, to understand that Equality of opportunity is a really huge factor in that, and it doesn't get talked about. Yeah, and bringing in the men into that conversation is really important because I feel like part of what is preventing opportunities to be to abound for women in the corporate, at least in the corporate level, is those who are making the decisions to hire are not women. You know, like it's just this that's sort exactly of, right. It's when like chicken or egg. You know, yeah. Is it that we don't have enough women? at the C-suite level to bring on more women or, you know, so it is, it is a kind of systemic problem as well. And, but I guess you have to sort of parallel path both of those issues is like trying to um, make corporate understand the benefits to having diversity and more women at the helm. And then also telling women you're worth that opportunity that you can do it. Yeah, there's tons of research to show that diversity in the workplace really pays off to the bottom line. Right. I mean, there's just there's just tons and tons of research that show that. And I'm going to add another story to this because it it some of some of it is the same issues that that face women and it's broadening the 
definition of diversity to include older workers there. And by older it, you know, like, it, I mean, it all depends on what your age is. Older to me looks pretty young because it's really starts at 50 and older. And when we talk and that diversity, age diversity, along with color and gender and sexual orientation should be part of the diversity conversation, because there's a lot of not good stuff happening. Mm. And just as with women, um, there's a there's a burgeoning amount of research that shows that when you have a multi-generational workforce, a diverse workforce by age, you also get better results to the bottom line. So I'd like to bring that into the conversation. That would be another story. I will read that. See, this is what keeps me going, Farnoosh. Yeah. There's so many There's no end there. to the impact that uh, yes. we can make. Um, last question is, this is a question that we're asking guests in partnership with our sponsor, Chase, which is, what is a financial step that you're personally uh, making, Diane? It could be, it could even be like a, an exercise that you do, an app that you like to use, something kind of sort of habitual that you practice to help with your ability to create financial security in your life. That this this thing that you do over here is really in correlate is really to feed your ability to be financially secure. Yeah. So the thing that I think is the most helpful that I do myself is I automate savings. You know, I automate contributions to my retirement account. I automate contributions to my emergency fund. But that's boring and it gets talked about a lot. So I'll I'll say my other big (laughs) money habit is that I really try to practice mindfulness with my money. And one of the ways I do that is I give myself little rules, what behavioral economists sometimes call heuristics that help keep me on track. So I don't have to rely on myself to make the the right money decision. I just follow my rule. So an example is that um, I get to buy lunch once during the work week and the rest of the time I brown bag it. That's that's just how I set up my week. My rule Mm -hmm. is buy lunch once a week, brown bag at the rest of the time. And I like framing it in terms of the reward. The reward is that it's buy lunch, right? And I wait 48 hours before I buy something that's not essential. I don't want to deprive myself, but I want to really think about it. Do I really want it or do I really need it? And if after 48 hours I still want the new outfit, and I can afford it, I, I get it. But I make myself think about it. I make myself stop and think about it. So well, you practice what you preach because this is this is behavioral economics in practice because yes. and there, there are tools out there that really um, leverage this. There's an app called Capital with a Q. I love Capital. Yeah. So yes. they're, they're all about this gamification of your financial rules, right? So it's kind of like if I think this is sort of like if then tech this, you know, like what it's called, if then 
this or something, or it's like, if I, you know, if I go to the gym, I I pay myself five bucks and they can actually communicate with some of the other apps on your phone to understand what you're actually doing and also like how you're spending and all of that to be able to reward you or not. So there is, when I was doing my research for Psych Yourself Rich, um, a lot of the behavioral economists were saying that as human beings, we thrive on framework and rules of thumb. Everybody just wants to know what's a benchmark that I can at least have in my, the back of my head. So, you know, don't spend more than 30% of your take-home pay on housing, Uh, you know, but making up your own rules makes it more special and feels more like you're playing by your own game. And um, it's, I love that. This is, this is so important to remind ourselves and probably people learning it for the first time. Thanks for sharing that. Oh, my pleasure. And I'm, I agree with you a thousand percent. Not surprising, but not surprising. Um, well, I look forward to seeing you again in person. It's been too long and yes. been wanting to get you on this uh, podcast for quite some time. So glad we could finally make it happen. And congratulations on the new post at Newsweek. And we wish you continued success, Diane. Thank you. And right back at you for news. You know, I really, I, I think so highly of the work that you do. I'm so glad that we were able to connect through money all those years ago. And thanks for having me on. Thanks to Diane for joining us. If you want to share this episode or read the transcript, head over to somoneypodcast.com. And remember, follow me on Instagram at Farnoosh Tarabi. You can send me your financial questions for our Friday episodes through Instagram. Just direct message me and I am on it. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And I hope your day is so money. <laughs>